following is a conversation with Brian Costello. Brian is a therapist, a carpenter, and a soon-to-be dad. In this conversation, we talk about overworked therapists, psychedelics, recovery, and more. This is a new beginning for Room 9, so your patience as I get back in the swing of things would be great. I'm not perfect, and I'm learning more and more every day. I ask we keep an open mind for these conversations, for they're meant to be for the sake of discovery and exploration. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Brian Costello. Our conversations, man. So yep. it has been, um, let's see, I came out to your house last time. That was so annoying. The audio has like the radio in the background the mm-hmm. whole time. And I, I got to figure out what it is because there's something, I don't maybe it's a chord, maybe it's this thing, but it did that with another podcast I did. Oh, um, man. And I could hear it all the way through. It was mm-hmm. like, I don't know what the hell. Anyway, what's been going on in your life? Well, uh, you know, business is... Uh is busy uh, and is definitely a common theme in, in therapy right now. You know, I, th- I think uh, since the pandemic started, uh, people have come to therapy more than I've ever seen before. You know, um, so people in private practice, especially um, almost everybody who had tons of openings in the past are, you know, have waiting lists. And, you know, it's, it's almost difficult to, to find a therapist right now. How many uh, how many like are on your caseload? Um, I'll see around 25 people a week. Dang, so. And that's, that's about average, right? Or like, that's about top as many as you can probably, most people can do. Yeah. I mean, uh, if they say full time in private practice is about 20 clients. Um, I know some people that see 30, um, somebody that's extremely busy that probably takes no breaks. Uh, we'll see 35, but th- you know, if I see 30, I'm, I start to get a little burnt out. So I try to keep it at 25. Can you serve 35 people like the way you should with your clients? I feel like that's tough to do with 25 people. Yeah. I mean, in the, in, you know, uh, if you are in private practice, that means you came through a clinic and in, uh, in a clinic setting, we saw 50 people a week, which is, which I mean, I get like my, when I was in like outpatient, like my guy, I was probably the easiest person ever. Mm -hmm. Like I went in like, it was nothing. He didn't have to worry about me, really. Yeah. It was like, yeah. so I, like if you have like maybe 15 of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. So it was like, yeah, maybe. I don't know. That's, yeah. Well, like you said, it's like, what do you do? So we're overworked. There's not enough. There's not enough uh, counselors, therapists, mm-hmm. psychologists. Yeah. More people and more people are starting to like want to talk to yeah. people. So. Which is great. You know, I think it's how, a great thing. How, how do we... Uh, how is the problem solved or what, what do you think needs to happen? Like to, in what direction do things need to go? Yeah. I, you know, in, in the Buffalo area, there seems to be a trend of um, people spending less of their career in uh, a clinic, uh, which I think is great. You know, I, I spent almost eight years between an outpatient clinic and then inpatient rehab. And I think that's becoming a little bit more rare. So people might spend four, four years in an outpatient setting where they are seeing 50 people a week and then kind of moving into their own private practice, which, you know, I think opens up. There's just, there's more time, there's less paperwork. Um, you can kind of control your, your schedule. You can see less clients. And I, I think the, the quality of care, I noticed a huge difference when I started in private practice is just the, the quality of care and what I can provide for people. Yeah, I was. I often wonder, um, bouncing from the nonprofits to the private practices. I mean, obviously, everybody needs to make money, 
So mm-hmm. it's not a terrible thing for it to be a business. If um, people get healthy, there's still going to be plenty of people. So it's not like it's uh, one of those cases where, all right, we don't really want to help anybody because we got to stay in business kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not one of those. So I often wonder, like, I see my, at least here's my experience with nonprofits, all from what I can tell, honest, uh, you know, people who want to actually make a difference. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know. I still feel like, I mean, I feel like all mental health practices, like, don't care enough about marketing or don't think they need it. I would argue the exact opposite. I think everybody needs it. And more mm-hmm. and more, I think if, in order to like reach certain people and touch the people you want to get touch with, it needs to be used more. Like you're, I feel like especially nonprofits are so out of touch. Like you're still making three yeah. page brochures. Yeah. Like, yeah. and not that direct marketing doesn't work anymore, but it's just, it's, it's something I feel like is totally missing. And even a, just even a good brand manager, I yeah. think would yeah. be like super huge. So. And, and to even talk what, you know, about, I hate to even say services, but uh, their approach or, you know, bring like a human element to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that is definitely something when I went into private practice and started all the social media videos and content um, just to tr- really try to bring a, a human element to it. I, I feel like when I worked in the agencies and they would talk about ending stigma, I, I actually think that that would that things like that would perpetuate a stigma that, that, that there's somebody over here that has mental health and then everybody else, uh, which, you know, couldn't be further from the truth. Everybody has mental health. Um, yeah, know. that always cracks me up too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't even, it doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. It, yeah. I always love that. Oh, mental health. Like, yeah. Whether you like it or not, you, your mental health is at somewhere Yeah, on the, uh, on a level and whether it's healthy or not. Yeah is uh to be determined yeah but yeah i think i guess one of my my biggest things like even i see stuff online and it's like i feel like um mental health and all of the behavioral health services are like hotels and you can just swap a logo out for another one mm-hmm. and you wouldn't even be able to tell the difference yeah of you know which company so yeah i'm not taking it in that route but that's just mm-hmm. uh my thoughts on how i like again i feel like everybody is really there to make a difference and want to make a change. And I yeah. also think there's so many rules and hoops and ladders and everything mm-hmm. you need to go through to even be able to do anything. Like I just remember working with a specific behavioral health company and they wanted me to be to do some specific work for them, but they needed to find money somewhere that yeah. they could actually say with you know grant money that could be used on that thing. And yeah. it's just like it's so annoying. I don't mm. I don't that's another nonprofit thing right there. Yeah. If you're yeah. for profit, obviously that's not a, not a concern, but yeah. Yeah. So COVID everything's getting crazier. I guess that's a terrible word to use right now. <laughs> <laughs> everything's going just, it's, I mean, people are just looking for services pretty much. There's yeah. a lot of more people than yeah. there was before. Obviously I don't, we don't, I don't have to ask, did COVID have anything to do with that? Cause obviously it mm-hmm. has had yeah. a lot to do with it. And I think yeah. a lot of people were stuck alone and people are overworked. So talk to me about the people that you see. Um, you know, what are, what is, what is a day? Like obviously session to session is different, but what are like some of your go-to methods as a, as a counselor therapist? 
Yeah. You know, there's there's the general trends that kind of have never changed. You know, somebody comes in and there are circumstances in their life that they're struggling with, you know, creates anxiety, panic attacks, uh, feelings of depression and the stuff that they've been doing hasn't been working. Or at some point there's, you know, the kind of the levy breaks for somebody and says, you know, most of the time during a phone consultation, somebody will say, you know, it's it's time now. So most of the time somebody's been thinking about this for a really long time and, you know, got to the point where they they feel like they really, really need to talk to somebody. So that that's the majority of time. I would say that is a lot more common in men than it is for women. Typically, if I see a, a, a male in my office, um, either in crisis or they were in a crisis before, went to therapy, found it helpful, and now they're back. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, I see a lot of maybe 35 and unders, and that is like the millennial generation. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that is, uh, I read an article years ago, how the millennial generation is the therapy generation. You know, in in my experience, somebody is uh, consumed books already on the topic or uh, on either spirituality or self-help or, you know, something kind of new agey, um, you know, or follow some therapists on social media or coaches. And so, when they come in, um, there's, you know, there's a, a language base that they can talk about. And, and you know, I've, I've had a number of clients come in and say, you know, they don't want to repeat the same patterns that their parents did. Um, they want, you know, more emotional bandwidth, intelligence. Um, they want to communicate a little bit differently. Uh, they've, you know, at that point, I, I think people are identifying some patterns, you know, because they've read about them. They recognize that in themselves, you know, and people do a lot of self-work. I do think that sometimes doing it with someone, it doesn't necessarily have to be a therapist, but there's something about the, the witnessing or recognition by another person or central nervous system. And then also, you know, to have somebody that can be objective, friends can't always be objective, give feedback. You know, I'm big on feedback. Yeah. Oh man. So much there, man. The mind is crazy, man. <laughs> and pun intended, because I mean, it's just, you can blatantly just play tricks on yourself and not even know it. Yeah. Like yeah. it is so fascinating to me mm-hmm. when uh, you, you catch yourself conning yourself. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah, it's strange. And I do agree with having somebody to talk to is it's always uh, helpful. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you're talking about this uh, dialogue in our head that there's a voice in our head that's rationalizing or conning. And I think when I started in the field 10 years ago, I had, you know, I'd been reading Eckhart Tolle and some some other authors that are kind of similar to him where he talks about consciousness or the ego. And I was not, you know, I was weird. I was weird (laughs) when I would run groups on that we are not the voice in our head, you know, and mm-hmm. that I would facilitate groups on meditation. And, you know, I was always known as pretty much any job I ever had. I was known as granola or the crunchy one, you know, uh, but but especially first in this field, you know, that was that was certainly the label. And now I feel like it's just commonplace where people will it refer is. to yeah. ego or that we are not the voices, you know, the voice in our mind or, um, you know, that they call it like metacognition, becoming aware that you are thinking and that those thoughts are not necessarily you. Yeah. Well, when you think about thoughts, it's like they just bubble up from the abyss. Right. Like have no idea where they came from, why Can't control them. of it. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It's so bizarre. Yeah. And to be able to step out and then observe that. I mean, it's like, what did I probably what would that be a decade ago? Like maybe 11 years ago, like I started getting into all that. I, I took a more darker route and dove straight into like Carl Jung. And mm-hmm. to me, that's what always fascinates me. I, I really, I, I truly believe everyone has at least 
a piece of a happy Auschwitz guard inside of them. <laughs> and like, I went right there. I was like, I want to find out what that is. Yeah. Because I, I, I personally don't, and I think this is what is really missing from so many people is they haven't even, a lot of people don't even know they have that darkness in them. Yeah. And uh, I think that, I don't think you can truly come to terms with anything and move on from anything in life until you go through that. Yeah. And that is probably one of the most difficult things yeah. in the world to do. Yeah. And yeah. do and I don't know, obviously you can tell somebody they're enlightened, right? Like you always hear the story of, you know, the guy coming to the master, I want to become enlightened. And it's not like you can just tell somebody you already are, mm-hmm. right? You have to send them on this journey. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're basically doing when you come, you know, people come and say that you gotta take us on this on, take them on this journey to like yeah. show them who they are themselves or get them to be able to see who they are themselves, I guess is better. Yeah. Yeah. It's giving me chills actually. (laughs) It is. It's trippy. And I mean, you talked about kind of like meditation, you talked about, you know, sitting in a circle with these people and doing, um, mindfulness groups, like one-on-one, especially with men, I guess I'm really getting at here, you know, what other, I don't want to say like, I don't even know what the term, what other techniques, I guess, or skills that do you use? Yeah. to uh, get people to at least become aware that they're not their thoughts and they're just observing them. Yeah. Um, so with almost all my clients, we'll, uh, we, you know, we go into the past unless they've done therapy and, uh, you know, have, have some past trauma that they don't want to revisit, um, which is, I would say, more rare. Uh, most people, especially, you know, the kind of clientele that I referred to earlier, the millennials who have, um, or, you know, 35 and unders, 38 and unders that have gone through and, and really kind of sat with some of these patterns, identified some of these patterns. They are usually coming in trying to break some of those patterns. You know, um, I, I, you started to talk about like youngs and, uh, shat, like shadow work and, mm-hmm. and concepts like that. So they're usually familiar. Um, so with most clients, you know, we do a, a like a timeline or a history gathering, um, of uh, their lives, of like their lives. Past, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's not, it's not just the experiences that we have that we're trying or traumatic or however we want to call it. It is our response to them, you know, and, and those, those responses play themselves out in our life, you know? Um, so like our stuff shows up and, and comes back to us in the form of our life, you know, and in the, the partner that we pick, the, uh, the patterns in our relationship, all that stuff, you know, I, I tell people all the time that human behavior is not strictly, but it is pretty predictable um, when, you know, you can gather information about somebody's past, you know, and the goal is to then process. So, you know, the the beginning is increasing insight, maybe connecting the dots between, you know, these earlier experiences uh, in, you know, with uh, relationship with parents or earlier experiences with relationship with peers and uh, like middle school and high school, uh, and then how it relates to you know, some more like unconscious behavior um, that tends to be causing some sort of disruption in their life today. And then, you know, what I use the most by far um, is EMDR with clients because I it worked so well for me. Um, you know, I, I always tell people it's like there was, there was a, a version of me before recovery and then a version of me after recovery. And then very similar, there was a version of me and my brain and how I operated in the world and saw myself and saw life uh, before EMDR and then and then radically different afterwards. Yeah, so let's go uh, let's uh, dive into that. Um I'll never I always forget the damn uh, yeah, acronym. It's, yeah, it's uh, eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. There we go. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um 
And so this was always, I've heard so much, this is, comes up all the time. I hear great things. I've heard nothing but great things That's about awesome. it. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, I guess let's dive into that. What does that, what does that look like? Yeah. So the work backwards a little bit, um, you know, the, the method in and of itself, um, originally was eye movement. So, you know, the therapist would, it's, it sounds, it sounds weird, but therapists would hold their fingers up, move them back and forth. And, uh, the client while focusing on the distressing material and the meaning, uh, that was attached to the distressing material or memory, um, just follows along with their eyes. Uh, what we know now is that it's less about uh, eye movement and what the eye movement was creating, which was um, bilateral stimulation. So it stimulates both hemispheres of the brain back and forth. And in doing so, it's uh, it's similar to the research. I don't know if you saw the documentary on like MDMA and psilocybin. Mm-hmm. Um, with, oh, I had questions. We were getting into that. Yeah, no, you <laughs> I figured that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's uh, similar to what happens in the brain. It, it takes a distressing memory that went unprocessed that kind of gets frozen with the intensity of emotion and the meaning uh, that was created around that experience, which is really age dependent, not necessarily time dependent. So if it happened at you know nine years old, a human's brain is so different at nine years old, and their needs and their uh, their autonomy is so different at nine years old. So you know, we, they'll focus on that material and the avenue of, uh, in which we'll process is bilateral stimulation. So that can come in the form of these little, this little machine called, uh, that has tappers. They vibrate back and forth in your hands and you follow a light uh, with your eyes, or there's a couple, couple different methods, but that, that is, you know, essentially, um, the end result of EMDR is the processing phase. So, so you're, you're going to identify a target memory, you know, so if, mom and dad split up and uh and dad left and you know a child is um pretty young you know children are egocentric which means they see the world through their eyes and their eyes only and so the adults in their life the other people in their life they know they exist but they didn't know they had like a whole day or they had other reasons for doing what they're doing everything that happens around them is essentially because of them you know that's just kind of our capacity of thinking uh, Mm -hmm. when, when we're really young so in a memory like that you know, say parents divorce or uh, dad's alcoholism or, or uh, mom or dad leaves, you know, we try to find kind of the a distressing memory surrounding that. And we're, you know, we're, I always tell people we're not looking to blame anybody. We're not headhunting. And if that is something that presents as, as like part of their distressing history, then, you know, we're going to go with it. But we'll identify the memory. And then I ask this question, what do you make that mean about you? So try to get into your seven or nine year old brain for a second. So that might be I'm unlovable or I don't matter or I'm not good enough, you know. And now that memory and the emotion tied to that memory that theoretically is not processed becomes our target memory. And then the goal is to basically resolve that information. It just kind of happens to you. It's, it's, it's really fascinating to go through. It's also really fascinating on, on my end as a practitioner doing it. It's really awesome just watching because they, they'll connect all these dots. And, you know, clients always say like, I've been doing this for 20 years and I didn't even know I was doing it. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's, man, it's, it's awesome. I've never seen anything like that. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, that's so trippy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, obviously I was going to get into the whole MDMA thing, but that's exactly what I remember, um, I know there was the similarities there almost. Yeah. Where like you're just kind of getting with those emotions. It's interesting how the brain, again, going back to the mind, how, yeah, I've been doing this for 20 years. I didn't even know it. Mm-hmm. Like, and then coming back, your environment, especially when you're that young, like mm-hmm. you said, we're egocentric, your environment, 
is just it's just it's still there and how real it still feels yeah and then how you by just basically just shifting your perspective in the way you think about it it's a very fascinating thing yeah and you know and most people don't know like you know if you uh, a question i ask clients all the time is um if if there's a really strong say like jealousy in a relationship if there's a really strong uh, emotional reaction there what i'll i'll ask the client is all right so, so you know and I, it's probably not going to jealousy is not going to be evoked in my office so but if they're talking about it it happened recently so i'll say okay see if you can bring that feeling up and what does it feel like and they'll describe it and i'll say what are the sensations in your body and they'll describe it and and then i'll say how old does that part of you feel or how old does it does that feeling feel when you're in that place put an age on it how old do you feel? And oftentimes, I don't think I've ever had somebody say, I feel, you know, this today years old when I'm feeling that way, a really, really strong feeling, especially one that feels very familiar. They'll say, man, I feel like I'm like 15 or 16, you hmm. know, and then we'll start saying to so what was going on back then, you know, and, and if you think about like what level of autonomy you had at 15 or 16 years old, you know, because uh, like a fear of abandonment, say, is, is a really common one that we'll process. And if, if I ask that person, how old do you feel? It is, it goes back to a memory of divorce or, or sometimes actually multiple times with clients of the first time they got dropped off at pre-K, you know, and they, they thought they were being abandoned. Hmm. Um, and now do you think that's like a, a, a life ending traumatic event for most of us? No. No. Um, for yeah, a four year old. But when you're that young. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why sometimes, uh, you know, those 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 feelings, it feels like the, you know, the floor just opens up from under you, you know, and we kind of get swept back into into, you know, a much younger version or at least a, a part that that sees itself as much younger. Yeah, that's so that's so bizarre. It's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. And then it is. It's so funny, like to think about. Because I always say we just like screw our kids up because it's just so easy at that age. Like any mistake hmm. when when they're younger, it's just like it sticks with them. It's like, why? It's so nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think, you know, uh, again, with the millennial generation being a little bit different or just younger generations, there's just I, I think there's more awareness about some of that stuff. And, and also, you know, you have to take your kids to pre-K. Um, so there yeah. are just some no, things that... Yeah. Uh, they might be impactful, but long term might not even necessarily be bad, you know, because what's the alternative? Like, who knows? I don't know. It doesn't show up in my office. Uh, oh, yeah, very much. Right. Yeah. And so do you is this like a, a practice you would use for basically, I mean, uh, all your clients or does that depend um, on what? the client is trying to actually work on yeah for sure uh what what you know it'll depend on what they're trying to work on um you know if uh if somebody's in active addiction and they're they're just trying to scrape together a, you know a couple days sober or they're not they're not quite ready to get to a meeting or they don't feel like they need it um or you know kind of ambivalent about recovery then we're not going to jump into certainly not going to jump into emdr i'm a little hesitant if somebody's you know, say three, four weeks sober, because it does evoke a lot of emotion. It does. It okay. brings it brings a lot of stuff to the surface. But I also always tell people that, like, you are very familiar with this material. Like, this is something that you, number one, already survived, went through. Uh, if it is something that's very traumatic, like an assault or abuse. And, you know, it is likely that you're walking around with this feeling pretty regularly. So we're just going to kind of bring it to the surface and process it. Yeah, well, that's it, right? We, uh, those all those feelings all those memories all have to go somewhere and mm -hmm. if you're not facing them yeah 
and going back to kind of like just the darkness and having to go through that and face all of that, just any of those past feelings and emotions and memories that come up, like it is, it's so crazy how scary it can be mm-hmm. and how real it can feel as if it was happening right then in that moment. And yeah. like I talked about, I talk about all the time, 15, my 15 years old, my brother and sister died. Like most of my memories, like I, anytime I just casually try to think in my past, that's where it starts. Yeah. Before, like I have, I have to really find and, you know, scrunch through a bunch of memories to find any memories before that. Yeah. And, and it's, it's so crazy how impactful yeah. something can be. Yeah. And, and grief, especially, you know, with, with EMDR, um, you know, the, the, I'll work with clients that had such a close relationship with a sibling or a parent. And then when they try to recall that the person it's, it's the, it's the, the grief that, that comes to the surface, mm-hmm. you know? And then I, I, I also, um, sometimes we'll talk about like, you know, when, when you process the grief, you're not forgetting about the person. Um, so it's a lot of these like, you know, stuck in place because that, that's, that's why EMDR is used is because if, if it was traumatic, it doesn't get consolidated into long-term memory. So it stays outside of long-term memory. So it, mm. uh, when it's strongly triggered, it feels like it's happening right now, you know? It makes sense. Yeah. 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 What, um, so let's, let's dive into the, psychedelic therapy what Mm -hmm. are what are your thoughts on that pretty neutral um yeah pretty neutral i think that i've had my own experiences uh not sitting with a psychologist some were really mind opening and expanding and then some you know threw me for a loop for you know 10 years of trying to figure out how to see the world uh and my place in it you know more accurately so, you know, but I wasn't sitting with a therapist well, yeah, or a taking micro doses or <laughs> uh, it's mostly macro doses. Probably mixed with plenty of other things. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's my assumption. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's so, I mean, obviously, yeah, the set and the setting are, are huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, not much is regulated with it. So, I mean, there's plenty of people who I don't think should be smoking cannabis if they have any kind of, you know predispositions to um, schizophrenia or whatever it's yeah. like who knows like that can yeah. be all be triggered and then taking too much of it like yeah um you know i know people who didn't come out of it for weeks sometimes because yeah. they've they've gone off the deep end so mm-hmm. yeah there's definitely caution to be be thrown there i've just i mean obviously my experience um has been I, my, my psyche is was created to use those as a mm-hmm. tool as a tool i mean even in my huge in my deep in my heroin addiction it was never like psychedelics were never abused or something i would even take when i was abusing heroin because yeah. i knew what i'd be like faced i'd have oh, to yeah. like start thinking about yep. and face yeah. and it would yeah. just go dark so i definitely stayed away from them then but and even now it's uh christine and i will uh you know take mushrooms once a year usually around her birthday but mm-hmm. what a healthy thing for our relationship it is so yeah but i do i think um I mean, the MDMA, the PTSD, the results they've had, I think, have been spectacular. Yeah. But yeah. off kind of doing, um, you know, the EMDR, right? Mm-hmm. EMDR, yes. Yep. Um, same kind of same kind of concept. At the end of the day, it really kind of brings you to a place where you can break through the walls, get to those feelings, emotions, and memories, yeah. Yeah. and like do something with them. Yeah, yeah, and and I, you know, the the common theme EMDR or or really any um, evidence based 
trauma resolution model or MDMA, which I, I think the research is uh, the most predominant or prominent with MDMA uh, over psilocybin. But uh, what they know is happening in the brain when somebody takes MDMA is uh, the limbic system decreases. So when a person is so just like a, a, you're processing with EMDR, person is, the person is focusing on the distressing and really charged memory. And typically it just stops there because then, you know, part of our brain just avoids distressing material. So we don't know what to do with that. I can't resolve it. It feels uncomfortable. And then, you know, we might go to a really bad habit or just ignoring it or stay really, really busy. So it just kind of stays there. It hides itself in, in, in our mind a little bit. With MDMA, it reduces the limbic system's stress response. So it, it desensitizes a little bit and reduces overall stress, even while focusing on something that typically just throws your central nervous system into like a, a you know, fight, flight or freeze state. And then when doing that, you, you have access to um, like, rational thought and higher thought um you know so so naturally what ends up happening is oh i'm i'm safe now because we can access it uh, and previously when somebody's experience re-experiencing something that was really distressing it feels like i am not safe and then my thoughts are i am not safe and why am i not safe and your brain's going to come up with a reason why you should worry yeah. even if it's not right here it's well it's student loan debt or it's this or it's that I'm going to lose my job and we're going to lose a house, you know? Um, so that's what the brain naturally does. Feeling state will come to the surface. The brain can't see anything in the immediate environment uh, as to why I'm feeling that way. So it just makes it up, you know? Uh, we do that all day, every day. So when, when that feeling state comes to the surface, but limbic system action goes down, a person has access to rational thought like that was never about me. I was just a kid or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm safe now or I do fit in, you know? Uh, and that's a similar process. But I also think, you know, if, if somebody develops a, a mindfulness practice, you know, same thing, mm -hmm. you know, a true mindfulness practice of just sitting with whatever comes to the surface, sensations, feelings, thoughts, and just be present with that. So you have access to that, that metacognition and really reduce stress, despite the fact that something stressful is coming to the surface. So when I say neutral, I think there's a lot of avenues. I think it'll you know, like anything, it'll probably work really amazing for some, might be somewhat harmful for others, might be neutral for some. Yeah. Like everything else. Yep. Which mm -hmm. is why sometimes when things are illegal, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of decriminalizing drugs and actually helping people. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. that's just me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it drives me nuts. I'm not even going to head down that head down that room but meditation man i've in jail i was meditating three hours a day mm. and i had i had psychedelic experiences yeah which was which was fascinating i accessed crazy parts like to the point where i completely forgot you know where i was i mean it's just it was fascinating how you can really learn to step outside and literally look back and watch like your emotions and your thoughts and yeah it's, it's a very strange thing. And the thing that people, not only with psychedelics for thousands of years, but even just meditation for thousands of mm -hmm. years have been like doing this for their mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Is for, is, is pretty impressive. And it's so funny, like mindfulness meditation is all, you know, it is, it is new agey, but there's awesome things about it. And there's yeah. reasons why they've been around for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody can do it. You know, I've, I've clients say I cannot meditate because I cannot stop 
thinking. And, you know, what I usually tell them is that that's like saying you can't meditate because your your heart won't stop beating. Um, like your brain is <laughs> not going to stop thinking. It's it's just step way back and watch the thoughts because the thoughts are not you. So and if the thoughts are not you, then what are you? And and I think that's the goal of a lot of a lot of old, old, old forms of meditation is. So if we're not our thoughts and what are we? Hmm. Which gets uh, yeah, even we, more trippy. Which brings you, yeah, brings you, brings you to language. Like to think about language, that always trips me out. Like, a, like a tree is only a tree because we all decided to call it a tree. But yeah, it's something we've categorized, gave a name to, put it in a group, and set yeah. it over there. But at the end of the day, it's just, it's just as much a part of the the environment as me, the table, mm-hmm. the the ground outside, the grass, that chair sitting there. Like, yeah, it's all that one thing and not to get all new ag again but it's yeah it's pretty uh interesting when you develop a healthy practice of yeah figuring that all out yeah and and whether it is you know somebody is you know just took mushrooms and and has having that experience or meditating you know i'm i'm because of my history with substances i'm i'm more like you know I, i don't advocate that people take mushrooms but i'm pretty neutral about it but meditation certainly to have that experience of just like looking at a tree and really seeing the tree you know and the, mm. and the life behind it and you know and i think if you have a, a, a potent enough experience like that it is it's really hard to see the like life ever the same oh it most certainly is for a little bit there i was pretty annoyed by that i was like i really always thought about uh the matrix when he's just like why oh why didn't i take the blue pill yeah yeah because yeah. <laughs> sometimes there's no going back it's been funny i've been struggling with just like loving people not being annoyed by people as of late like just so much so much ignorance i've had to remind myself so many times of the effed up things i did in my past these past couple months and i don't know what it is i don't between long story short my neighbor over here poured a new driveway and put it two feet on our property. Mm. So we're dealing with that. And he's just an ignorant human being. And it's like, oh, so just, I've been finding it everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's been, I I don't, I don't ever, I usually, I don't like flip out. I'm not that person in my car screaming, but I'm just like, I usually say sarcastic things out loud, even Mm -hmm. if it's just me in the car. And I'm like, oh, I just find myself like, I can't wait. I want to be out of this South Buffalo. I want to be in with some land away Mm -hmm. from people. So more and more. Every day, every year, I get older. So I've been struggling with the whole, just like, all right, let's love and accept everybody <laughs> as yeah. of late. And yeah. How to like, I guess, get into a quick question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you got people and you're hearing people's shit. You're hearing them. Basically, they're kind of complaining, you know, at least, sure. you know, that's where they're here to do. And mm-hmm. that's, but obviously it's got to be tiring on you at times. And like, so what, uh, what do you do? Like, just to keep your mental health going. Even with, we've talked in the beginning, we touched on overload and, you know, therapists are getting overloaded. So, you know, everybody yeah. is getting overloaded. Um, yeah. How do you, how do you stay healthy and wanting to still love people, accept people and help people? You know, just the, it used to have, you know, it was a reminder for a long time um, that it's, you know, you said that I'm listening to people's shit. And yes, I am, uh, but it's not my shit. So when I first started in the field, 
I was, I had some like self-sacrifice tendencies, some caretaking tendencies. I thought that I could just take people's pain from them. Uh, I tried to make them feel better all the time. And then when I looked around, I saw these, these uh, therapists or counselors that were in the field a really long time. And I thought, man, they just don't care anymore. They're really like, they're so burned out or they're so bitter or um, they don't, they don't come off like really warm and empathetic and trying to help, you know, but like, here I am trying to help, you know, um, and, um, and I think a lot of therapists have, I don't want to say a, a savior complex, but we do have some tendencies towards like, you know, uh, I mean, you need those tendencies or else you wouldn't be in the field. Yes. You and I think that's what right draws you. It. That's what draws you to the field. And then as I, my mental health started to just deteriorate, you know, from doing that 24 seven and also being in an addictions clinic, which is, you know, you've. Yeah, that's sure, you know, always it's, it's, depressing. It's, yeah, it's <laughs> um, yeah, it's a lot of concentrated human suffering, you know, from a lot of different angles. And then, you know, over the years, I think I've just, um, you know, your therapists are pretty much in therapy eight hours a day. And it's not about them. It's not their own. But they, you know, you learn so much about people and how our brain works and how I operate. So, you know, over the years, I have probably outwardly become that therapist that I thought was. Uh, didn't care, but I, I do. I, I care as much as I did um, when I first started. I still feel really connected to my why, um, why I joined. I think it's part of who I am. And at the same time, I respect people enough to, you know, point some things out. Uh, and I, I have way more realistic expectations of how much change is actually going to take place. I don't feel like I need to, you know, I don't, I'm not like a, 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 doing the circus monkey thing that I did when I first started. Cause I was mm -hmm. like, I don't actually know what I'm doing at all. Uh, cause nobody does when they, they get out of school. And so I felt like I was uh, performing, you know, and, and I, I wanted to provide some sort of benefit in their life, but I didn't know how to do that. So, you know, that, and I, I also really try to hold space for them, be present for them, stay kind of grounded within my own central nervous system. Cause I do think that also adds to it, you know, just like how the MDMA will, reduce or EMDR reduces distress during, you know, typically stressing material. I also try to do that. And the other thing is, you know, where I will talk about childhood sexual abuse and physical abuse and all kinds of stuff will come up in my office. But I'm very aware that I'm I'm sitting with the adult who survived all that stuff. And that is like wild. And just what human beings have been able to survive and deal with and process um, is just it's astounding. You know, so I really try to keep my eyes focused on the survivor of that stuff. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to look at it. Because it already happened. If it was happening right now, will I, will, I, will I and do I react differently to it? Absolutely. You know, I'll go into like, okay, what, how do we... Get you out of it at yeah, right this moment. Right, yes. right, like domestic violence or whatever. But it happened 20 years ago, right? So they already survived it. Mm -hmm. so, how much, like how much is it, uh, like I just think back to the you know, the Freud and Adler and Young and, you know, Otto Rank, all those days when it was just, how much is it of that is still like kind of used as far as like free association and just kind of letting people talk. And I feel like most of the time they just figure it out on their own. Yes. Um, you know, definitely you want to leave room for that. You know, something that also that I have had to learn and, and uh, unlearn to some degree is um, when to talk and when not to talk mm. and leaving Host space. a podcast. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, and, and really just like leaving space for, you know, someone. And, and sometimes when it's dead air for like a, a minute, I'll even like jokingly say like this, this is one of those moments where the therapist is quiet and hoping that you say more about that. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, people usually do sometimes just having somebody there to listen, uh, and maybe ask a couple more prompting questions or come at it from a different angle. Um, not everything has to be like a super deep dive into, you know, our shadow or psyche or, uh, yeah. parts, you know, Yeah, that'd be tiring. And so it's funny speaking of like talking and having conversations with people and when to listen and when not to. So mm-hmm. somebody so often, it's all, all like always that battle in, in the head where it's like, you say something, obviously I, I'm not going to interrupt you and you, it's like, all right, but I got to keep listening. So I can't really hold on to this next question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yeah. having to do that is uh, obviously as a therapist, you got to be good at that because people, as they're speaking and going and figuring their own shit out, yeah, you have to know when to kind of guide them yeah. and when not to. Yeah. And that is, um, you know, kind of, as you say, you've been doing it for like over 10 years now. And as you've, as you've learned that, I guess what, what, in what ways do you know, like when to just keep quiet and not, if that makes any, if that's even a question that can be answered. Cause I, I'm assuming a lot of it is almost intuition, but yeah, yeah, definitely intuition. So, you know, I, the other method that I use a lot with clients is parts work. Um, so identifying different parts and could be several podcast episodes that it's such, it's such like an in-depth form of therapy and I get drained talking about it because it's so heady sometimes <laughs> so it you know the 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 quick blurb about it is that we all have parts you know and, and software systems in the brain and it's it is you know very connected to EMDR as well but a part that I have developed probably predates you know being a therapist is uh, I want to you know, it's probably some combination years ago, like needing to be liked, wanting to be liked, and also wanting to like do something in my office for somebody, right? And so when I'm in that space, I'm recalling things that um, like I'm, it feels performative and it feels mm. forced. And so nine out of 10 times, if I'm, if I'm in that place and it feels forced or I'm trying to like solve their problems, cause that's not my role or figure it all out. Cause that's also not my role. I can take a big step back and and then it does feel a little bit more intuitive and natural. And then I'll just say less and listen more. And, you know, the other just very practical thing I do is take notes. (laughs) So (laughs) if there is something, yeah. So if there is something that comes up that I think, oh man, we gotta, we gotta explore this. If we're, you know, if we're doing EMDR with the client, like, yeah, we definitely have to come back to this. I got to write it down. Yeah, that's definitely, which is something you as you can tell, I'm, I'm rusty on my, my podcast hosting, which is something I actually usually do is have a little uh, post-it note next mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's frustrating when, you know, you have a, a good way to take it and it's mm-hmm. gone. It also didn't help that I ripped the bong once before you got here. So <laughs> that probably has a lot to do with uh, the forgetfulness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but what are your... um? So I know I, I know we've had this conversation. I know you are more of a, like, a, a complete abstinence guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, I, I know you're... We wouldn't be sitting here talking if you didn't believe, you know, everybody has their own kind of, you know, way they do it. Yeah, and for do sure. it right. But, you know, in, in your life and in your recovery, are you, are you do you still do AA and stuff? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so you, you still go on and do that. Yep. I have found, I found it very hard to do the AA thing, which I tried. I, I actually tried a sponsor thing. Um, 
but that drove me nuts. I don't know what it was about the whole, I think it was just, re, it always reminded me of church. Yeah. Which I just have always, I, I wouldn't say I have a bitter taste in my mouth for religion now, but mm-hmm. um, I definitely I don't enjoy any of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. for the most part, I, I would say like, I, I do love some of the, uh, the stories in the Bible and stuff like that, but I just, I would much rather read about Greek mythology and, mm-hmm. and the, those stories and get, get the same stuff out of it. Yeah. And it's just the Greek mythology is so much more badass. Like the God of love was born out of a ball sack that was thrown into the ocean. Like that's not, you know, those, those things are not fun. They're not yeah. in the Bible. So, yeah. yeah. But I've always had my, uh, my thing with that, but getting back to the point, you know, you're still on AA. How many years has it been? Uh, it has been about, uh, 10 years, 10 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's impressive. Yeah. yeah. My, my thing always was like, how many people like a lot of people stop their addictions on their own yeah and just keep on going which obviously they are never part of the numbers or the statistics sure. or anything of that nature but i feel like for the most part i mean so many aa i'm sure i'm, I'm assuming it's pretty low percentage of people who are in it and it works for them you know for a majority of the time but there's still a number of people who it helps yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the statistics are fairly good in, uh, in comparison to like treatment. Um, but as you know, you've been to treatment, I worked in treatment for a long time. <laughs> not everybody is actually there for, for treatment. No. Um, no. and, and not just the stereotype of like the, the, uh, the nudge from the judge and things like that. But yeah, even still, uh, even with no, outside referral source or uh, a family member, it doesn't mean the person actually wants to stop yet. It takes a lot mm-hmm. out of a person to make the decision to live a completely different lifestyle. And I think that is most of the time when when you look at stats on even, you know, community recovery, what, regardless of what it is, AANA, SOS, smart recovery meetings. I think it's hard to get an accurate like data set because I think, you know, it, it, these avenues, whatever avenue somebody takes is probably going to work for them if they are ready to do a lot of, you mm-hmm. know, very difficult work. It's the only thing that worked for me, you know, and, and I can't say that I, you know, I, I don't take like a hard stance on what other people should do or, you know, I, I do think that like recovery looks different for everybody. For me, I really, really, really lack discipline in my life. Uh, I lack structure in my life. I, I was really open to spirituality, you know, um, ever since I was a little kid. I did get a lot out of not necessarily church, but like uh, I have some memories of like religion class and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and then a ton of memories of like hating it, you know, probably more of those. <laughs> You know, I also took issue with church and things like that, but I always had this like common theme in my life of spirituality. You know, as a teenager, I got exposed to like Eastern thought and meditation and ego. Once I learned about the ego at 16, I was like, what is life? You know, uh, and it like totally <laughs> flipped me out because I'm like, I, we're not the voice in our head. And 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 we're so much more concerned about the perception of others, uh, you know, than, than my own perception. And it's weird. And like, that's how we operate, you know, and then and then the the gamut of hallucinogens and and um you know sober and non-sober spiritual experiences you know so when i came into um recovery you know and, and got a sponsor i was already like really deep into spirituality and i think that you know i used to say the universe all the time i say god now um and not a religious figure or a mm-hmm. biblical figure or any any religious book figure but like just 
I don't, I don't have the chip on my shoulder anymore about it. So I'm just comfortable with the term God. And if, you know, people have a reaction to that, I can't control it. That's a fact. Yeah. And so <laughs> well, it's just a heavy word. I mean, it is. everybody brings their own experience. with Yes, it. for sure. So I'm, I try to be very mindful of that. And then also not, not care. It just doesn't matter. To yeah. it either. Like yeah. if somebody's so, going to make a big deal out of it, then sure. they were going there yeah. anyway. Or, you know, go right to, uh, well, he's a religious person. Yeah, sure. I don't know. Whatever. Maybe. Who cares? Whatever. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So, you know, I had this concept that like we are consciousness, right? When I first got into recovery and I'm like, we are, we're God, you know, we are uh, cells in the body of God, but like each of us are God, you know, and my sponsor uh, at the time, he said, well, if you're God, don't drink. And I was like, <laughs> shoot. <laughs> And so, you know, I had taken this like deep dive into spirituality and consciousness and meditation. And I took workshops and I did sweat lodges. And it was the biggest part of my life, even in active addiction. It was a huge part of my mm -hmm. life, probably something that like saved me. But uh, recovery and that style of recovery where there was a lot of kind of rules almost, you know, and structure. And I, I would listen to people because I knew that they felt like me and that they had some lived experiences mm -hmm. like me. And they went through similar stuff. Uh, that I did, that I would listen. And, and it took a lot for me to listen to somebody else. And so I, I think, you know, from that, I gained this uh, spiritual like humility that I did not have because I was just walking around thinking like we are God. But, you know, at the same time, like, sure, are we consciousness? Are we the universe? And, and are we cells in the body of God? Yes. But also I operate from a place of, if you want to call it ego or just Brian. Monkey brain is really more what often, is. <laughs> Right, way more often. And I need help. You know, and so that was like a, a catalyst for me. It was like, I just need, I need help, man. Like, sure, are we, uh, maybe uh, my consciousness or God? Yeah, theoretically, uh, but also like I am dying and like I really need help, you know? <laughs> I'm fucking my life up. I yeah. need something. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's so funny. That's so funny, that that stage. Yeah, you, you get humbled eventually, one way or another. Mm -hmm. yeah. Either, yeah, one way or another, you grow out of your, your stupidity in that area. Yeah of acting like you know it all yeah like that was it i did that so much when people would bring up christianity god or whatever and like my mom and sister literally believes a dude died and came back to life three mm -hmm. days later and literally believes somebody spent three days in the belly of a whale and i've learned to be in a room with that and i've learned I've, i was just humbled so hard the one time when uh after i read ernest becker's denial of death and i don't know if you've read that book but he mm -hmm. talks about death repression and how one of the biggest ways we repress our repress death is religion. Like we're mm. going somewhere after, so it's okay. You know, yeah. we don't got to be scared to die. But I remember I backed my mom in the corner and she just looked at me. She's like, Sean, I have to believe that there's a heaven. Cause I have to believe I'm going to see my two dead children again. I was like, mm. boom. Yeah. Oh dude. Yeah. Oh. I can yeah. still feel it. Even saying it like, yeah. Sean, you are a fucking idiot. Like, just shut your mouth. Yeah. And and you know what? <laughs> what I why I don't have a chip on my shoulder anymore is like everybody has that. Whether it's uh, social or political affiliations or uh, ways in which they see the world that bring them comfort because they do. Um, mm. that like everybody has that. So whether they collect in a church or they go, you know, join a, a run group and that's part of their life, everybody has it. So, yeah, it's, that's kind of my thought on the, the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, well, it's, I mean, it's not even, um, I, I just, I, I didn't, I don't realize what the point is anymore of it. Like I'd rather have the conversations of things we do want to talk about and discuss and mm -hmm. 
that's why that's where I love things going, man. That's where I love things going. Let's uh before we wrap up, I do want to touch on one thing we always touch base on is mm-hmm. men. Men never probably not really wanting to go out of therapy much and not wanting yeah. to talk about shit. And I feel like since that's one of the biggest things we always talk about, we have to go somewhere with it. I don't know exactly <laughs> where, but I mean, obviously, what are percentage of the people that you sit down with are male? So my percentage is higher than I think the therapy percentage. Um, and I think that is because I'm male. So a lot of times men uh, will feel more comfortable, especially if they're going through like divorce or relationship stuff, more comfortable with a, a male therapist. I've seen both. I liked both. You mm-hmm. know, I grew up in a house with a lot of women, though. Um, so I was comfortable either way. Um, yeah. I mean, I would say half and half, which is high. Yeah. That's, uh, I figured that would be high. And the only, um, you know, and that's for typically like a mental health therapy or just therapy in general Mm -hmm. when it comes to addiction um the concentration of men to women is um, crazy it's insane yeah 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 you definitely see a lot of that in in the rehab you figure that out real quick yeah so i would have maybe 90 to 95 percent men in in, addiction treatment yeah Yeah. for sure yeah that's I, i have much respect for people who sit in especially those impatients and do that all day man Inpatient was hard. Uh, outpatient, you you know, you had some space in between people. Mm-hmm. Inpatient was hard, you know. You were at Stutzman? Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's tough. Yeah, and so I, while I was at Stutzman, a really close friend of mine had overdosed and passed away. You know, he's I've known him since I was four years old. Uh, and then I'm going to work, and I have clients throwing a tantrum over peanut butter being gone. You know, and I remember that. yeah, and or like, you know, this dude's hair gel and he couldn't have his hair gel because clients constantly sneak in drugs. Right. So they have to go through their stuff and they're short staffed to state facility. So he couldn't get his hair gel for a couple of days, you know, and like outside of that You're facility, going that, I'm going yeah. to wakes and funerals. And this guy is dying from the same disease. And all you can think about and focus on and harass me about is his hair gel, you know, but, you know, you can get away with uh, you can take certain liberties if you are a person in recovery to a person that's that's saying that, you know. So sometimes I would just say, like, you are here because your body is falling apart. You are your your family <laughs> is in shambles, you know. Why are you so worried about your hair job? Right, right. You know, like the, you'll survive without the peanut butter. Come on, like focus on some recovery, something, you know, mm-hmm. related to your recovery. Yeah. Yeah. There's a. I don't know if you know the philosopher uh, Arthur Schopenhauer. There's a, a quote that um, life is a pendulum that swings between boredom and suffering. Mm. And it's been, it's been stuck in my head a lot the last uh, like four or five months. And because I, I always, always go back to addiction because everything that I learned that I can recall about addiction was com- it really was not true. Maybe those are just the things I remember, but so much of it. Like in my personal experience mm-hmm. has not been true. Like just like the whole abstinence thing that was preached so much and the worry about other things. Like I've had alcohol, maybe, I don't know, a few drinks. Like you could put that shit in front of me all day and my body, and I have one sip of it. My body's like, dude, what are you doing to me? Mm-hmm. Like, stop. Like I have yeah. no desire like to drink alcohol. Um, and, but I mean, it took, obviously now I, I approach this very, very cautiously. Yeah. Very. Yeah. I mean, it took me years and years to even, uh, think, 
cannabis. Um, I mean, I told all my counselors from day one, I wouldn't stop. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I knew that would be something I would continue to do again. I waited three years after yeah. um, coming out. It's not like it's something I did right away. And I knew uh, psychedelics, I wouldn't stop, but I just, everything, my whole, I mean, long story short, I just, it totally blew my mind about what. So anyway, the, going back to this quote, I've been thinking a lot about recovery and people and, I've always noticed in myself, even before my, like I've needed to be obsessed with an idea or, mm-hmm. or something. I needed to be figuring something out. And I really, going back to not only going through your darkness thing, but like we need to get to know ourselves and find out what we're passionate about. Like I think mm-hmm. we all need something to be obsessed with like yeah. and to find a goal and to accomplish yeah. something. Because until I figured out life is just from at least the meaning of it is, to gain as much knowledge and learn as much about me as I can before I die. Mm-hmm. And cause you can be 99 years old and not know anything about yourself, Yeah, which is crazy to think about. And once I kind of figured that out, I was like, all right. And I was able to find something I'm passionate about. Yeah. But I don't know if you can do that without going again, going through that darkness to kind of swing it down and back around. Yeah. I just, I don't know if it's possible. I yeah. mean, what are, what are your thoughts on that? We'll wrap up after that. But do you think somebody can truly transform who they are without going through that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, I think uh, suffering is certainly a catalyst, uh, if not like the catalyst to some of these like psychic changes that, that people experience. I can't speak to everyone on planet Earth, all 7 billion of us. <laughs> it was certainly my experience, though. And it's my experience in my office as well, but I'm really biased because, you know, people are talking about their, their shit in my office. So, uh, maybe, maybe there are people that, um, can see the writing on the wall and they make these radical changes. I would read the writing on the wall. I would see Mm -hmm. the warning sign. I would say, um, you know, road closed up ahead. Uh, I would look at the cliff and I would be like, Mm, I gotta try it, gotta. you know. Uh, and so, it, in my life today, it's it's not like that. Thankfully, it's uh, my my tolerance for uh, for pain has significantly decreased, you know, for the better. That's good. Mm-hmm. That's good, Brian. It is. Uh, well, I guess anything else you want to add or share? Yeah, I guess one more thing. Uh, you talked about the pendulum between what boredom and suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it reminds you of this, this recovery quote that like the alcoholic or the addict is irritable, restless, and discontent and waiting for that next, like the ease and comfort of, of, um, you know, that first drink. And so, you know, I could really relate to irritable, restless, and discontent. And, um, you know, I tell people all the time that like, I'm, I myself am not, and I wish I was, um, and I have siblings that I think are like this. Uh, and I, uh, have friends and family that are like this. Uh, I am not wired for contentment, hmm. you know, and what came first chicken or the egg? I, I have no idea. I don't need to know. Bark. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm just, I'm not, you know? And so, uh, for me having some of these, these practices make me that way though, you know? And for me, that was a, a huge important component of it was, uh, connecting with, you know, spirituality, which at first, you know, we talked about became like very like new agey and consciousness. And then it turned into God and it's actually kind of come full circle, um, where it's like, it doesn't seem to be a duality anymore that it's mm. like consciousness and God is one and, um, which is really cool. And that always, always comes into my office too, you know, and, and I, because of 
the connection or uh, association with the word God, I, I rarely talk about spirituality and yet spirituality is like always present in my office because I think it's like somebody's life journey. And, you know, and, and the, I would say the, the number one thing or, you know, two things to really help with that, that feeling of like discontentment, because I also will get into these modes where I get so obsessive about everything. Mm -hmm. But the two things that really, really help help is like a, this conscious contact or this connection with this like life, you know, uh, it doesn't even have to be called anything, but like life, mm -hmm. you know, merged with life and then service, you know, uh, and that is something that I think I really missed and something I've been thinking about, you know, we're, we're having a baby in December and I've already thought about like how I want to bring him up with like a service mind, you know, and, and, and to do volunteer things. And, uh, there's something about for me, uh, and maybe cause I'm wired to be selfish, but when I am, when I, somebody asks me to do something and I say yes, or, you know, I kind of go out of my way to help other people. It just, it just fills your cup, you know? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I always loved the argument that helping people is selfish too, but as far as, um, I mean, mm -hmm. you wouldn't help anybody if it made you feel like shit. So sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're, I've always, yeah. always thought about that. Um, yeah. And we're wired that way. And that's one way to look at it. You know, that still somebody is uh, dopamine's released when uh, somebody helps somebody. But it, it's also released uh, if I help somebody and you watch it, dopamine's released in your brain, too. Um, so we're kind of we're wired for pro-social behavior. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If COVID didn't prove anything, <laughs> didn't prove that. What else did it? Oh, yeah, I mean, big time. Like, yeah, that's nuts. I mean, that's kind of what a great, you know, way to swing it full circle to mm -hmm. the exact thing we talked about at the beginning. And yeah, is, yeah, that definitely, definitely proved we, we need some social, social activity yeah. <laughs> with other humans. Yeah. And, you know, if there's, uh, you know, to add to the full circle, uh, the, I think the mental health impacts, the social impacts are, we're seeing the beginnings of that. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not when, it's not in the crisis, it's after the crisis that things get hard. You know, yeah, it, it starts it, during, really. Yeah, during the crisis, you're, you're you know, running on adrenaline. Uh, it's when the adrenaline's done, you know, so, so people feel really off, feel really unmotivated to work. And, and you know, there's so many changes that have taken place. Um, you know, if you're feeling like that, it, this is, it's, it's normal. It's part of it, you know, and I always tell people just talk to people because they're also struggling but nobody talks about the fact that they're struggling mm -hmm. which adds to this idea of like there's something wrong with me i'm uh, like i'm i'm broken still you know? with technology today how does not how does everybody not know this come on yeah yeah <laughs> somebody's got to we got to watch more of these let's yep. go yep. share it yeah <laughs> brian it's always a pleasure man I yeah likewise always love uh chatting with you dude yeah same all right let's do this